But thank you all for being here. The title of the seminar is Pursuing Unity on Tri-Unity, Aiming for Clarity on the Recent Trinity Debates. And I'm going to assume that if you're attending the seminar, you are at least marginally familiar with the debates that I'm talking about. There has been a lot of discussion and debate within Reformed evangelicalism over matters, doctrinal matters related to the Trinity. The question of the eternal functional subordination of the Son and whether there are eternal relations of authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity. The doctrine of the eternal relations of origin, that the Father eternally communicates the undivided divine essence to the Son in eternal generation, and that the Father and the Son eternally communicate the undivided divine essence to the Spirit in eternal spiration. The doctrine of divine simplicity, that God's attributes are identical to his essence, and whether that means that the divine attributes are therefore identical to one another in God. The doctrine of inseparable operations, whether all of God's acts, like his essence, are undivided and indivisible, such that each divine person is equally active in every divine action. There's been the question of canonic Christology and what it means for the Son to have emptied himself in the incarnation and whether he's laid aside some or all of his divine attributes to become genuinely human. And undergirding all of this, there have been debates about the methodologies that are employed to give the various answers to all these questions. Biblicism versus the great tradition, literal grammatical historical hermeneutics versus census plenier and spiritual interpretation, even and increasingly the, uh, in the place Thomas Aquinas ought to have in our theologizing about the doctrine of God. Those are some of the recent debates that I'm talking about. And the name of this seminar is Pursuing Unity on Triunity, because there needs to be unity among Christians on the doctrine of the Trinity. These debates over which so many within Reformed evangelicalism are so divided cannot be things that we are divided over, because though they are complex, and though they are difficult, and though they are mysterious, each of these matters relates fundamentally to the fundamental doctrine of Christianity itself. The triunity of God is the heart of the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without it because there's no Christianity without God, and the Trinity is who God is. Herman Bovink wrote, the entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant, the essence of the Christian religion itself. And William G.T. Shedd said, Christianity, in the last analysis, is Trinitarianism. And when we look around us and see dear friends and partners in ministry suddenly in a web of disagreement about matters related to the Trinity, there's a real sense in which it ought to make us tremble because the Trinity is the doctrinal nerve center of Christianity. We may be able to tolerate differences on secondary and tertiary doctrines, as important as every doctrine of Scripture is, there is room for brotherly disagreement on the mode and recipients of baptism, 
on uh, church government or certain eschatological matters. But the Trinity is on the first level of first level doctrines. And if there is anything that we need to be unified on, it is this. And of course, there is a great measure of unity. We thank God for that. The brothers who are on opposite sides of some of the questions asked above all confess one God in three persons. No one is openly espousing Arianism or modalism or tritheism. But the problem is people are espousing positions on EFS or simplicity or inseparable operations that tend toward some of those great errors. No one is openly denying the Trinity, but there are guys who are holding positions, the logical entailments of which do strike at the implications of historic biblical Trinitarianism. And so we need to press hard after unity on these matters. Yes, as I said before, these matters are nuanced. They are fine. They are complex. And all of them bow us in humble wonder before the infinite, incomprehensible God. But that incomprehensible God is not unknowable. He has revealed himself. And so we are to press after the Bible's answers to these questions, even unto the sharpening of one another who are on different sides of the issue. The Dutch Reformed theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel wrote this, the entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised concerning this mystery. The entire Christian life is being exercised with the mystery of the Trinity. And too many church members, too many pastors are willing to say, one God, three persons, it's a mystery, we'll never understand it, let's move on to more practical matters. But it is worth the long, difficult, wearying conversations with one another. It's not worth the Twitter bickering, right? Cantankerous, snark-filled snipes on the internet edify no one. And those who engage that way show themselves too immature for the task of doing theology at all. And frankly, they shouldn't be taken seriously. But if we can get face-to-face, if we could get voice-to-voice, pen-to-pen with one another, and press one another to be scrupulous in our exegesis and in our reasoning, in a spirit of brotherhood, eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, believing the best about those whom we fully acknowledge are our brothers in the Lord, and trusting that the Spirit of God will do His work of illumining the truth to those who seek Him diligently. If we can do that, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Augustine famously said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable than on the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, the inquiry is often laborious, but because the errors are so dangerous and because the discovery of truth is so profitable, we must be willing to press one another toward unity. And on this subject... Our unity cannot consist merely in charitable conversation and agreement to disagree. Here, our unity must consist in the common confession of the truth. We can be patient with one another while we get each other there, but we do have to get there, all of us. 
And the aim of this seminar is, is to take a step toward that. And I hope to do it in four parts. First, I want to comment on methodology. Second, I want to address the metaphysics that underlie these discussions. Third, I want to apply what we will have gone through by then to address the EFS debate specifically. And fourth, I'll respond to some objections that have been raised against what I will have presented. So in the first place, then, it's necessary to begin with a word about methodology. And it cannot go without saying that I am, that we all ought to be passionately committed to the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments are the sole infallible authority on all matters of Christian doctrine, that the Bible reigns as the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and by which all creeds and confessions, all the church fathers, and all the teachers throughout church history are to be examined. We don't believe any doctrine simply because it was codified in a creed or taught by a preferred theologian. We believe the theology we believe because we have been convinced that such doctrine is biblical, that it is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture. At the same time, I am also convinced, and you ought also to be convinced, that the creeds of Nicaea in 381 and Chalcedon in 451 are accurate expressions, expositions of the biblical teaching on the triunity of God and on the hypostatic union of the divine and human natures in Christ. And I have those creeds there for you. Uh, I won't take time to read them, but you, you can read them. Scripture alone is the norming norm which is not normed. But Nicaea and Chalcedon are norms of the Christian faith. They are not on the same level as Scripture. They themselves are to be normed by Scripture. But as biblically accurate summaries that have stood the test of the centuries, they are more normative for our faith than, say, our favorite preacher, Bible commentator, or podcaster. And observing that, friends, is not a concession to the Roman Catholic doctrine of traditionalism. It's simply agreeing with a very central Reformation teaching that the creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon were biblical in what they affirmed, that Jesus himself is the eternal word become flesh, the word who was in the beginning with God and so a distinct person from the Father, and the Word who was God and thus fully God Himself, that He is consubstantial of the same substance as the Father, inasmuch as all the fullness of deity dwells in Him, Colossians 2.9. That He is the only begotten God, John 1.18, eternally begotten from the Father's essence, God of God, light of light or as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature, so that to see Him is to see the Father, John 14.9. That He was existing from all eternity in the nature of God, Philippians 2, but in the incarnation assumed the nature of a man into union with His divine nature. Two natures without confusion, without change, without division and without separation, concurring in one person. Those 
are biblical declarations. And so insisting on fidelity to the creeds in this case is insisting on fidelity to the Bible. I wish I had time to do an exhaustive biblical proof of Nicaea and Chalcedon. But absent that, I would say that if you, do, if you disagree with the creeds that have defined Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy, since there might have been called such a thing as Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy, I think you bear the burden of proof to show where they fall short of biblical teaching. I'm not arguing for blind loyalty to the great tradition, whatever that means, but I am saying that if I can avoid putting myself in a place where I can't trace my convictions on the Trinity and on the person of Christ through the steady stream of historic Christianity, and if in so doing I wind up making the same arguments that the heretics of history made, even if I'm able to sort of ward myself off from following all the way to their conclusions, if I can avoid that, I want to avoid that. And that means that we can't be impatient with the use of extra-biblical terminology in these Trinity debates. It is necessary to use terminology that doesn't appear in Scripture in order to explain precisely what Scripture does and does not mean by the language it does use. As soon as a teacher of error invests biblical terminology with a meaning that Scripture does not intend, they have made it necessary for the defenders of truth to use language that is not used in Scripture to distinguish the genuine biblical sense of the terms in question. The Arians insisted that Scripture's description of the Son as begotten and firstborn meant that the Son had a beginning. But in order to explain why that was not the case, Athanasius, Augustine, and others employed extra-biblical terminology to explain the genuine meaning of biblical terms. Begottenness for the eternal relations between the Father and Son didn't imply origination, but the Father's eternal communication of the divine essence to the personal subsistence of the Son. The scripture doesn't speak of essence and subsistences in that sense in any explicit fashion. But these terms were employed to best capture what Scripture does say and to distinguish it from false teaching. And so we can't be impatient with that. We also can't be impatient with dealing in the necessary implications of biblical passages. John Owen had an insightful comment about this as he defended the Trinity against the Socinians. I gave you the full quote in the notes, just one relevant part. He writes, "'Whatever is so revealed in the Scripture is no less true and divine than whatever necessarily follows from it. For how far soever the lines be drawn and extended from truth can follow and ensue nothing but what is true also. In other words, the logical implications of a divinely revealed truth are no less divinely revealed nor less true than the scriptural principle from which it's deduced. From truth follows nothing from tr but truth. From truth follows nothing but truth. If A is proven to be a scriptural truth, and if the rest of biblical testimony, along with the laws of logic, demand that A implies B, and B implies C, and all the way through to Z, Z is no less biblical than A. Or to put it in the language of the Westminster Confession, as I did before, that which is deduced by good and necessary consequence is no less biblical 
than that which is expressly set down in Scripture, provided that it is a genuinely good and necessary consequence. And that's where the locus of many of these debates seem to be. It's not disagreement that the biblical text says the Son is consubstantial with the Father. It's a disagreement about what the implications of the Son's consubstantiality with the Father are and what those implications cannot be. And that opening point on methodology then leads me to a second point on metaphysics, which I believe is at the heart of many of the misunderstandings in the current Trinity debates. If you believe that the cardinal confessions of the Christian faith are that the only true God is three persons subsisting in one nature, and that Christ our Savior is one person subsisting in two natures, then you are necessarily interested at the most basic level in defining what a person is and what a nature is. If you can't be a Christian without confessing one per, uh, three persons in one nature and one person in two natures, then the definitions of person and nature are of paramount importance. <clears throat> and this means that every Christian is involved in a study of metaphysics. That is to say, the study of nature, uh, the study of being, the study of personhood, the study of existence, and like topics. So, first of all, we need to understand that the decision before us is not the Bible alone or the Bible plus metaphysics. The question is, what kind of metaphysics does the Bible require us to believe? If we agree that three persons in one nature is a biblical summary of the nature of God's being, then the Bible requires us to believe something about what a person is and what a nature is. So first, metaphysics is the business of every Christian, to say nothing of every Christian theologian, but then every Christian is a theologian. Now, the simplest way to summarize how the Bible conceives of person and nature is that a person is an agent, an actor, a subject, a who. And a nature is that by which a person acts. It is the set of equipment employed by a person to carry out the actions he performs. While a person is a who, a nature is a what. Natures do not act or experience Persons act or experience according to or by virtue of their natures. Now, by and large, the historic Christian tradition subscribed to this who versus what understanding of a person and a nature. By the early 6th century, Bethius' definition of a person as an individual substance of a rational nature became standard. What's he saying? A person is an individual who, who subsists in a what, that is, at the very least, rational. That definition is representative of the Trinitarian and Christological thought of men like Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, Athanasius, Hilary of Poitiers, and Augustine, namely, the very men who gave us the one nature in three persons formula that we all agree is essential to the Christian faith. And this understanding held sway through the Middle Ages into the Reformation period, and was codified in the writings of post-reformed theologians with whom many of us find ourselves allied on so many issues. Men like Turretin, Owen, John Owen, 
Thomas Goodwin, Peter Martyr Vermilye, Petrus von Maastricht, and John Gill, and others. But with the onset of the Enlightenment of the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there came an outright rejection of Christianity altogether in favor of a humanistic rationalism that placed human reasoning above divine revelation. Secular thinkers rejected outright the notion that God could be three and yet one in any meaningful rational sense. Now, with the jettisoning of the cornerstone of Christian doctrine came the wholesale rejection of the Christian account of metaphysics. The rationalists started over from the ground up, aided by nothing other than their own human reasoning. And when rationalist metaphysics connected with the secular discipline of human psychology, the human person was redefined. Eventually, personhood became confused with personality. When we hear personality, what we think of is what a person is like, the set of traits or characteristics that that define what kind of person he is. But what does that sound like but the very thing the Christian tradition had defined as nature? Enlightenment rationalism rejected Christian metaphysics and redefined their own, virtually swapping the definitions of person and nature that funded the historic definitions of those cardinal confessions of God's triunity and of Christ's hypostatic union. Well, in response to the Enlightenment, Rather than rejecting such a shift outright and proclaiming the Christian faith without apology, the professing Christian apologists of the time compromised with the world. They were terrified that no enlightened unbeliever with this new metaphysics and epistemology would ever take the claims of Christianity seriously if it didn't deal with those issues on the unbeliever's own terms. And so they adopted the Enlightenment's redefinition of metaphysics and epistemology with the design to beat them on their own field, to show that Christianity can still prove reasonable even on the unbeliever's presuppositions. Kant's distinction between the phenomenal and the noumenal realms is an example of that compromise. Well, anyway, by the late 19th century, the definitional shift from person to personality the shift from defining a person as person to defining a person as nature began showing itself in professing Christian Trinitarian and Christological reflection. The persons of the Trinity began to be conceived as a society of personalities, not three whos subsisting in a single what, but three centers of consciousness, each performing their own discrete operations by virtue of their distinct personhood each complete with their own mind, will, and agency. Because according to the revised metaphysic, that is what makes something a person, mind, will, and agency. But the ancients would have heard the concepts of consciousness, mind, will, agency, and said, these are all properties that constitute a nature. This is a set of equipment or characteristics that make a thing what it is, not a person who he is. And so can you see what a disaster this makes for Christian theology, a theology whose cardinal confessions hinge on a specific definition of person and nature? After the Enlightenment, you had professing Christian theologians who knew they had to affirm the ancient formulas of three persons in one nature and one person in two natures. 
but who had been duped into redefining person and nature in such a way that would have been unrecognizable to the very men who gave us these formulations. I would argue that your confession of those formulas are meaningless if what you mean by person and nature are opposite of what those men meant by the terms. Well, that redefined, unbelieving, enlightenment metaphysic continued to hold sway in many conservative theological circles through the 19th and 20th centuries, I suspect unknowingly in many cases, and especially as of late. It was the theological air that so many of us have breathed even as late as this first quarter of the 21st century. Many of us have been trained as if the post-enlightenment evangelical doctrine of God was historic Christianity rather than a departure from it. And so it feels almost sacrilegious to question it. But in God's kindness, several theologians and historians have begun to recognize this metaphysical shift had taken place, and they have sought to discover just when and how the project of Christian theology had gone off course. And having discovered it, they've begun to disentangle the enlightenment metaphysics that had been taught was the metaphysics of historic Christianity And they began to recover the metaphysics of those who bequeathed to us the cardinal formulas that we regard as the foundations of our religion. The result has been this movement of theological retrieval that is among us, a movement that is granted not without its own problems, not without its own flaws, not without its own excesses and failures of articulation, but a movement that nevertheless is seeking to unite our fundamental confessions of the triunity of God and the hypostatic union of Christ, the confessions which virtually everyone wants to affirm, to unite those with the definitions that the framers of those formulas were using when they gave those formulations to us, which many seem either ignorant of or suspicious of. They're trying to unite the confessions with the definitions. I believe it's this confusion of person and nature that lies underneath much of the disagreement on the current Trinity debates. If we see this fundamental confusion, it's no wonder that those who subscribe to social Trinitarianism, those who define the persons of the Trinity as if they are three centers of consciousness who possess distinct mind, wills, and agencies, it's no surprise that they're offended by the accusation that they have yielded ground to tritheism. To affirm three minds, wills, or agencies in God is to posit three natures in God. But because they're employing the enlightenment metaphysics, which defines a person as a nature, they think all they're doing is confessing three persons in one God. Well, of course, they've got to have mind, will, and that's what a person is. Well, that's what a person is post-1750. It makes sense that some perceive our insistence upon doctrines like inseparable operations as yielding ground toward modalism. Inseparable operations teaches that since the divine nature is the principle by which the three persons act, therefore God's external acts, like his nature, are inseparable, indivisible. That doctrine was formulated in order to safeguard the unity of God's nature and to protect against tritheism. But because some are employing the enlightenment metaphysics which confuses person and nature, they hear inseparable operations 
which protects the singularity of God's nature as if it erases the distinctions between the persons and affirms singularity of personhood, which is what? Modalism. It's no wonder that we are awash in canonic Christology, in which classic vanilla Chalcedonian Christology, the divine and human natures concurring in the one person of Christ, is suspected as giving ground to Nestorianism, that Christ is two persons. To those who have confused the definitions of person and nature, to say that Christ subsists in two natures at the same time sounds like he's saying, it sounds like saying he subsists as two persons at the same time. And so people hear orthodox interpretations of Matthew 24, 36, for example, that while the son was ignorant of the day or hour of his return, according to his human nature, but according to his divine nature, he did know the day and hour of his return. They hear that and they say, that's Nestorianism. That makes Christ two persons. The same person can't know and not know the same thing at the same time. Well, yes, ordinarily, the same person can't subsist in, one, in a divine nature and a human nature at the same time either. But they hear that. Enlightenment metaphysics hears what two natures sound like. And they think, ah, that'll make them two persons. So the point is, if Reformed evangelicals are going to get past the Twitter bickering and the podcast sniping of the present moment, we have to be willing to stop and listen long enough to consider for all of our protestations that we believe in three persons in one nature and two natures in one person, whether we're using definitions of person and nature that would have been unrecognizable to Orthodox Christian theology before the 18th century. The question is not... Is this theology biblical or metaphysical? The question is, which metaphysical definitions is this theology built upon? Does this or that definition of person cohere with scriptural teaching? Does this or that definition of nature arise from a coherent holding together of all the biblical data? And another flashpoint where properly defining person and nature makes all the difference is the EFS debate. What is that? Well, we all agree that the incarnate Son, the man Christ Jesus, submits to and obeys God the Father. The question is, does that submission and obedience extend back to eternity past, even before he took on a human nature? In other words, is part of what it means to be Son his submission or subordination to the Father, so that if he is the eternal Son, he is eternally submissive? Those who answer yes to those questions are careful to note that they do not intend to say that the Son is ontologically subordinate to the Father, that he is of some lesser being or essence than the Father. That would be Arianism. No, they say that he is only functionally subordinate to the Father in his role as Son. Hence, Eternal functional subordination, EFS. Are there, the question is, eternal relations of authority and submission, sometimes you'll see the acronym E-R-A-S, eternal relations of authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity? Now, many of you will remember that this issue exploded in the summer of 2016 after Liam Gallagher and Carl Truman responded to Wayne Grudem's and Bruce Ware's defense of EFS as an argument for complementarianism. That, that argument goes like this. Submission in marriage is no indication of ontological inferiority 
of woman to man, because the Son is eternally functionally subordinate to the Father and is in no way ontologically inferior to the Father. Now, Gallagher and Truman objected that such argumentation is contrary to Nicene orthodoxy, and the blogosphere erupted. Mountains of blog posts were published, articles were written. Between then and now, whole books were published that have pressed us to consider what implications this debate has for our doctrine of the Trinity. It's become something of a touchstone that indicates the general health or sickness of our doctrine of God. And almost seven years later, it seems like every other week that a seminary student or an interested church member asks me about what I think of EFS. And so I want to spend the rest of this seminar explaining and defending where I land on the issue in an attempt to persuade you to reject the doctrine of the eternal submission of the Son and to affirm classical, historical, Nicene, Trinitarian orthodoxy. And I'll state my argument right up front. It should be in your notes too. I've become convinced that there can be no eternal relations of authority and submission ad intra within the life of the Trinity from eternity because submission is the subjection of one will to another will, and therefore it requires multiple faculties of will. Because will is a property of nature and not person, and thus two wills would require two natures, and there is only one nature in the Godhead. Submission requires multiple faculties of willing. In the Godhead, there's only one faculty of willing because there's only one nature. So in other words, there can be no submission or subjection within the Godhead ad intra without there being a distinction of nature. The reason the incarnate Son can submit to and obey the Father, which of course everyone grants, is because he has assumed a human nature and thus a human will into personal union with his divine nature, which human nature he possesses everlastingly. Before he assumed a human nature in the incarnation, there is no subjection of the Son's will to the Father's will because they have the identical self-same will. Ad intra-submission would threaten the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son, namely the oneness of God's nature. Now, that argument depends on the truthfulness of the key premises, namely that submission requires two faculties of will, and that will is a faculty that is properly predicated of a nature, of which there's only one in the Godhead, and not person, of which there are three in the Godhead. How do we go about proving the validity of these two premises? Well, first, let's begin by considering the definition of submission. It seems virtually tautological to say that submission entails the subjection of one will to another will. Understand what I mean by that? I don't mean that we have to will different things, that our co the contents of our will are different in order for there to be submission. No, just that there are faculties, distinct faculties of willing. The content of my will and the faculty by which I will what I will are two different things. I'm talking about faculties of will here. So submission is the subjection of one will to another will. If I submit to you, I bring my own will into subjection to your will. What I want is placed under submit and is governed by what you want. The Oxford English Dictionary defines submission as the action of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority 
of another person. Bdag's entries for hupotage, submissiveness, subjection, and hupotasso, to submit, are consistent with that definition. You say, why do you use an English dictionary's definition? Well, because submission in this sense is not biblical. And so I can't, I can't go to the Bible to prove that this particular usage of the term doesn't exist, right? Because it doesn't exist. So I'm doing what I can here, right? <laughs> so I believe it's rather inescapable. Maybe you have a better argument, but for me to submit to someone is to subject my will to their will. And therefore, submission requires multiple faculties of will. And in the almost seven years that this debate has been raging, no one has offered a compelling argument for why that's not the case. Though, as I say that, though, I will need to deal with a somewhat recent objection, which I will get to a bit later. We'll see how much later. <laughs> so submission requires multiple will faculties of willing. You say, okay, fine. Why does that matter? Well, since will is a property of nature not person. And since there's only one nature in the Godhead, there can only be one faculty of willing in the Godhead, which makes submission impossible. So you say, well, but how do we know that will is a property of nature, not a person? If will is a property of person, then each person of the Trinity can have his own distinct will, and submission makes total sense. Well, the way we can discern whether will is a property of nature or person is to consider the incarnate Christ. Jesus uniquely is one person subsisting in two natures, divine and human. He's not two persons, as the Nestorians taught, nor does he have just one nature, whether wholly divine, wholly human, or some amalgam of the two, like the Monophysites and Eutychians taught. Jesus is, as Chalcedon has put it, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, if will were a property of a person and not a nature, we would expect Christ, who is one person, to have only one will in his incarnation. If will were a property of a nature and not a person, we would expect that Christ, who has two natures, to have two wills. So which is it? Does the incarnate Christ have one will or two? Well, that question was first hashed out in earnest in the events leading up to the Third Council of Constantinople in 680 and 681. It has been dubbed the Monophylite Controversy. Those who taught that Christ had only one divine will were called monophylites, monos thelema, right? And those who taught that he had two wills, one divine and one human, were called diophylites, duos, right? Thelema. The council concluded that Christ had to have both a divine will and a human will. Maximus the Confessor famously argued the diophylite case by appealing to the fourth century Cappadocian father Gregory of Nazianzus's well-known Trinitarian maxim. Gregory said in the fourth century, that which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. You should memorize that phrase. That is to say, Christ is our Savior by His substitutionary saving work. He saves us by taking on a full and true human nature so that 
he is genuinely consubstantial with us according to the manhood, able to stand in man's place as a genuine man, representing us in every way. And so when the Cappadocian fathers argued against Apollinarius, who taught that Christ had assumed a human body, but not a human soul, they argued that if there was an aspect of humanity that Christ failed to assume to himself, then that aspect was not healed in his saving work. If Christ was to heal the human will along with the rest of human nature, he must have assumed a human will in his incarnation. Chalcedon actually shuts us up to diatholatism because it says the human nature that Christ assumed in order to be perfect in manhood and truly man and consubstantial with us according to the manhood is that he was, quote, of a rational soul and body. The human rational soul that Christ assumed is that by which he thinks and understands and makes choices. The faculty of the will is located in the rational soul. And Chalcedon distinguishes that rational soul from Christ's personhood and says it was part of that human nature that he assumed in order to be consubstantial with us. In other words, Chalcedon locates will in the soul and it locates the soul in the nature and not the person. If will was in the person, Christ would have had to assume a second person, a human person, in order to have a human will. If Christ didn't assume a human will in his incarnation, as the Monothelites contended, well, then not only is our depraved will unsavable, but it's difficult to argue convincingly that Christ was and is genuinely and fully human. Genuine humans have human wills. They make human choices by virtue of their human wills. Besides all of that, the whole point of the incarnation was that our penalty had to be paid by a man and that his obedience, which would be credited to us as righteousness, had to be the obedience of a man. If Christ, the last Adam, cannot choose as a man to walk in obedience to God's law precisely in the way that the first Adam failed then he cannot stand in our place as our substitute and accomplish our justification as our federal head, as Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 says he does. So you see, monothelitism isn't just an arcane dispute about a meaningless point of doctrine. Those 7th century councils all just tied up in knots over about things that don't matter. Crazy monks that got nothing better to do than to argue about you know, how to split theological hairs. No, monothelitism undermines the genuine humanity of Christ altogether. That's what the council concluded. Monothelitism was condemned as heresy, and diothelitism was established as the orthodox teaching of the church. So Christ has two wills, divine and human. All right, now follow me. If Christ assumed a human will, which he must have done for the sake of our salvation then he had two wills, divine and human. And since Christ is one person with two natures, or in two natures, it's fitting to conclude that will is a faculty properly predicated of a nature and not a person. Christ's two wills match up with his two natures and don't match up with his one person. If will were a property of person and not nature, which incidentally is both what Arius and Apollinarius taught, 
But if will were a property of person, since Christ had two wills, we'd have expected Christ to be two persons, which of course he is not. Christ had two faculties of willing in accordance with his two natures, one divine and one human. And besides all of that, I would argue that most of us already implicitly know that will is a property of nature and not person. Say, really? Because I never thought about this before. Well, when we engage in the debate over the bondage and freedom of the will and man's depravity, we explain the reality that apart from regenerating grace, man's will is free to make choices, but not to choose rightly. He's not an automaton unable to choose between alternatives, but he is depraved, unable to choose righteousness. Man has a will, but his will is bound to act in accordance with his what? With his nature. So even without the monothelite controversy, we know that will is a property of nature. So, since the Godhead is three persons fully subsisting in the single undivided divine nature, and since will is a predicate of nature and not person, there are not three faculties of will in the Godhead by virtue of three persons. There is one faculty of will in the Godhead by virtue of the one nature. Consubstantial persons, which is to say, persons who subsist in the identical, self-same, numerically identical nature, all will, those persons will, by virtue of the self-same, numerically identical faculty of willing. And that means, by definition, they cannot submit to one another. The single divine will cannot be subjected or subordinated to itself. That's not submission, that's just decision. If there is to be submission, there needs to be a distinct faculty of will. And that faculty of will is added through the Son's incarnation. Since the incarnate Son takes on a human nature alongside and into union with His divine nature, He also takes on a human will as part of the machinery of that human nature. Now, this one person, the God-man, Christ Jesus, subsists in two natures, the hypostatic union. Therefore, he has two faculties of will. And now with the hardware needed for submission, he can now subject his human will to the divine will and say things like, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6, 38. And not my will, but yours be done, Luke twenty-two forty-two. But before his incarnation, in eternity, the son subsisted only in the single undivided divine nature and therefore possessed only the one divine will he couldn't subject his will to the Father's will because his will was the very same identical faculty of will. Now, if you reject that line of argumentation and you embrace EFS or ERAS, in my estimation, there are three alternatives that you must choose from. First, you could embrace tritheism. That is, you could rightly conclude that will is a property of nature but wrongly insist that each divine person has his own faculty of willing. In such a case, the Father, Son, and Spirit would have three distinct natures. This obviously undermines Trinitarianism, is heresy, and is very unattractive. <laughs> Second, you could embrace monothelitism. That is, you could wrongly conclude that will is a property of person and not nature, 
And in that way, you could explain that three wills in the Godhead only means there are three persons in the Godhead and not three natures. And in that case, you would avoid tritheism, but you would be constrained to affirm that Jesus, because he is one person, had only one will. Which will would you grant to him? If he has only a human will in the incarnation, what happened to the divine will that he had by virtue of being a divine person from all eternity? Did the divine son change from having a divine will to having a human will? There goes divine immutability. If he has only a divine will, but not a human will, well, you've fatally undermined the genuine humanity of Christ and the gospel along with it, as I've mentioned. If he has some sort of amalgam of the two, a divine human will or a theanthropic will, then he has a third sort of will that is neither divine nor human. And so you get all of the problems that we just talked about. A third alternative is that you could rightly embrace both monotheism and diophilitism, but wrongly insist that will is a property of person and not nature. In that case, you would have to explain if will is a property of person and if Christ had two wills, why he's not two persons. None of those alternatives is acceptable to the teaching of Scripture. Whether in one area or another, the necessary entailments of EFS undermine key doctrines, key biblical doctrines of theology proper, Trinitarianism, or Christology. If the nature of submission requires multiple faculties of will, and if, as a property of nature, two wills requires two natures, there cannot be eternal relations of authority and submission within the Trinity without positing multiple natures in the Godhead. And so, brothers... EFS is not tritheism, but if consistently held, it does entail tritheism. By God's grace, most of those who hold EFS repudiate tritheism by confession, but they cannot do so consistently, at least not by any definition that would have been recognizable as historic Christian orthodoxy. If classical Biblical Trinitarianism is to be consistently affirmed. EFS must be rejected. Now, in the nearly seven years that I've been talking with folks about this, I've heard several objections raised about or against what I've just presented. And I want to respond to four objections. The first is that submission is inherent to sonship. Submission is inherent to to sonship. Isn't that just what it means to be a son, to submit to a father? And, and isn't that just what it means to be a father, to, to exercise authority over your children? Isn't that just what Scripture means by calling the father father and the son son? The answer to those questions is no. Scripture never gives us any warrant for such a conclusion, and interestingly, that has not been the answer of historic Christianity throughout the ages. From the post-apostolic period through to the early 18th century, the church, virtually uniformly, taught that calling the divine persons Father, Son, and Spirit spoke not of eternal relations of authority and submission, but of the eternal relations of origin, sometimes called the modes of subsistence. In other words, the Father is called the Father because He eternally begets the Son. 
The Son is called the Son because He is eternally begotten. The Spirit is called the Spirit because He is eternally spirated, breathed forth by the Father and the Son. These eternal, ineffable, indescribable, internal acts of God within the divine being are precisely what distinguish the persons of the Trinity from one another. The Father, Son, and Spirit subsist in the identical divine nature, and so they are perfectly co-equal with one another. You say, so what makes them distinct? What distinguishes them so that they are genuinely three persons is that the Father is ingenerate, He is of none, the Son is eternally generated, He is from the Father eternally, and the Spirit eternally proceeds, He is eternally from the Father and the Son. Now, I don't have time to do a full exegetical defense of the eternal relations of origin, but eternal generation is taught in passages like Psalm 2-7 and John 5-26 and everywhere that the Son is called the only begotten. I know many of you have been taught that the Greek term monogenes comes from monos and genos rather than monos and genao, and so that it means one of a kind rather than only begotten. Charles Lee Irons has recently convincingly proven otherwise, and I list his article in the recommended resources at the end of the handout. Uh, that the research that makes that uh, argument fundamentally relies upon a single article published in 1953 by a guy named Dale Moody. Everybody who's repeated that argument goes back to that article, and what Irons does is he shows the failures of that article, as well as, of course, dealing with the biblical material himself, and so I would highly commend you uh, to read Charles Lee Irons on monogenase. Monogenase does mean only begotten. And it refers to that eternal self-differentiating act in the inner life of the Godhead by which the Father eternally communicates to the Son the entire divine essence. It's why the Nicene Creed calls the Son God of God, which, if you think about it, shouldn't exist. God can't be of anything, right? That's the whole point. He is God of God, eternally receiving the divine essence. Not beginning to be, not beginning to be God, but this ineffable, indescribable act of communicating, eternally communicating all of Godness uh, to the Son. The Creed calls him God of God, light of light. Because, John 5, 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. You say, wait a second, to have life in yourself means you don't get it from anybody. Right, that's the, that's the why that this is such a, an amazing mystery. But Jesus says he was given to have life in himself by the Father. That's why the Nicene and Athanasian creeds say that the Son is begotten, not created. Not because he was begotten from the virgin's womb, but because he was begotten from the Father's essence. Otherwise, God of God would be God of woman but it's God of God. Begotten doesn't mean born of a virgin. And the doctrine of eternal generation, guys, was an indispensable staple in the pro-Nicene case against the Arians. If you read the history, you recognize how central this doctrinal confession was to giving us the deity of the Son and the doctrine of the Trinity, not because they were, orig- they were originated from the fathers, but because they were, the fathers were protecting the biblical teaching against all of these errors that we would all say we repudiate 
even though we argue like them sometimes. One scholar comments that eternal generation, quote, eternal generation is a central feature of pro-Nicene theology, both Latin and Greek. So it's not like, well, the West was really big on eternal generation, but the, the East, they, you know, they left that alone, right? No. Both Latin and Greek sides of the church, th- those who are arguing for the pro-Nicene position in the fourth century, centrally relied upon eternal generation. And interestingly, it wasn't until the doctrines of eternal generation and eternal procession began to be dismissed as overly speculative or philosophical or lacking in scriptural foundation that eternal relations of authority and submission were posited. In other words, once theologians began to deny the personal properties, which were the only means of distinguishing the divine persons from one another, they needed to fill that gap with something because otherwise what makes them distinct? And it was then that some began to teach that what makes the son the son is that he submits. But the point is, the eternal relations of origin are the teaching of Scripture as well as of historic Trinitarianism. And so when the Bible calls the son the son, it's not pointing to his eternal submission, but his eternal generation, his eternal fromness from the father. Just as a father communicates his human nature to his son in ordinary generation, such that his son becomes a distinct person while equally human, so also God the Father eternally communicates to the son the fullness of the divine essence so that the son, quote-unquote, becomes, not really, but we're talking about eternal acts, and so we we strain at language, quote-unquote, becomes a distinct person while equally God. Submission, then, is not inherent to sonship. In fact, John 5.18 says, that when Jesus was calling himself the son of the father, he was making himself equal with God. So to be son is not to submit. To be son is to be equal to the father, but at the same time to be from the father. That's what sonship is. Equal to the father, from the father. Second objection is that being sent implies subordination. Being sent implies subordination. 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so if the Father sent the Son, the Father must be exercising authority over the Son, and the Son must be responding submissively or obediently to the Father's command. And since the Father sends the Son into the world, such sending happens before the Incarnation before the Son has a human will. Now, it's interesting that this same argument that is employed by the pro-EFS side is an argument that the Latin Homoian theologians used to argue against the Son's, to argue for the Son's inferiority to the Father, since the one who sends must be greater than the one who is sent. Augustine, when he's engaging with these guys, calls them Arians. They were most likely semi-Arians, but it's noteworthy that the argumentation is virtually the same. Well, how did Augustine answer that argument when he encountered it? Before I tell you, I'll just remind you that it's 3 o'clock, it's break time, I'm going to keep going. If you guys need to get up and leave, please don't feel bad about it, okay? How did Augustine answer that? Similar to the previous point, Augustine and the pro-Nicene tradition argued that being sent was not indicative of submission or subordination, but fromness. 
they appealed to eternal generation once again. Augustine writes this, quote, not because one is greater and the other less, or we could say not because one is authoritative and the other submissive. Augustine meant the same thing. But because one is father and the other is son, one is the begetter and the other begotten. The first is the one from whom the sent one is. The other is the one who is from the sender. That is to say, the eternal divine processions ad intra ground and direct and shape the temporal divine missions ad extra. In other words, the Son is sent from the, fa- from the Father in the economy of redemption because by virtue of eternal generation, the Son is from the Father from all eternity. But, that, but Augustine doesn't leave it there. He also goes on to argue that being sent does not imply submission by virtue of another fundamental axiom of pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, the doctrine of inseparable operations. I've talked about it already, but again, this is the teaching that because the three persons of the Trinity each act according to the identical principle of action, namely the divine nature, and because that divine nature can never be divided, therefore, neither can the divine works be divided. Every external act that God performs is worked by all three persons of the Trinity. So John Owen puts it like this. He says, The persons of the Trinity are undivided in their operations, acting all by the same will, the same wisdom, the same power. Every person, therefore, is the author of every work of God, and the divine nature is the same undivided principle of all divine operations. That's not to say that the three persons of the Trinity can't be distinguished from one another in their working. Scripture often appropriates divine works to one person of the Trinity as is fitting with their personal properties. So because the Father is from none and the Son is from the Father and the Spirit is from the Father and the Son, we say that every divine act has its origin from the Father, is accomplished through the Son, and is perfected in the Spirit, from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. But the point is, as one scholar puts it, that, quote, when a biblical text mentions the work of one divine person, this should not be seen as excluding the others, end quote. You say, what do you mean? Well, who created the world? 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, it's the Father from whom are all things. But Colossians 1.16 says, by him, that is the Son, all things are created, were created. John 1.3, all things have come into being through him, that is the word. And then Job 33.4 says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world, but there aren't three worlds. There's only one creation. There are three who create, but there is only one act of creation because the three persons work inseparably. Or consider, who raised Christ from the dead? Say, well, the Father did. Acts 17.31, he's furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. But wait a minute, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body, John 2, 19 and following. 
John 10, 17, and 18, I lay my life down so that I may take it again. Nobody takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The Son raised the Son from the dead. But then Romans 8, 11 speaks of the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So the Father raised the Son, the Son raised the Son, the Spirit raised the Son, but there weren't three resurrections. There are three who resurrect, but only one inseparable act of resurrection. Say, okay, what's the point? The point is, when Scripture says that the Father sent the Son into the world, we are not to imagine that the Son Himself or the Spirit is excluded from that act of sending. And Augustine illustrates that brilliantly. He says this, In what manner did God send His Son? Did he tell him to come, giving him an order he complied with by coming? Did he ask him to, or did he merely suggest it? Well, whichever way it was done, it was certainly done by word. But God's word is his son. So when the father sent him by word, Augustine says, what happened was that he, sent, he was sent by the Father and His Word. Hence, it is by the Father and the Son that the Son was sent, because the Son is the Father's Word. That's a brilliant illustration of inseparable operations. We can't imagine that the Father is authoritatively commanding the Son by virtue of an authority that the Son Himself does not share. The Son Himself is the very Word of the Father. And so the way Augustine and the Nicene fathers answered disobjection to be sent is to be subordinate was to say sending isn't an exercise of authority. It's simply the father acting inseparably ad extra according to his personal property ad intra, his eternal relation of origin as the eternal begetter of the son. The one who begets the son eternally sends the son in time. The one who is from the father eternally is sent from the father in time. That actually reveals their equality, not authority and submission. All right, hang, hang in there. Third objection. Objections are advanced on the basis of several texts which describe the incarnate Son as submitting to the Father. John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. People actually argue that that means that he is submissive, he has to be submissive to the Father. Interestingly enough, that text says inseparable operations. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it's what he sees the Father doing. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway, John 5, 19. John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. John 14, 31, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. But none of these passages prove what's claimed. Because nobody disagrees that the incarnate Son submits to, is subject to, or obeys the Father. Having assumed a human nature, He submits to the Father by virtue of the human will that He took on. But before the incarnation, before the Son had a human will distinct from the will of the Father, that submission was impossible. It won't do to say, as is said, that if we can't predicate things of the Son in eternity past, that we can predicate of Him during His earthly mission, 
then therefore there are two trinities. That dog won't hunt. Why? Because the son wasn't eternally incarnate. There is a very big difference between having a human nature and not having a human nature. If we can predicate everything of the eternal son that we can prevent, we can predicate of the, the incarnate son, do we say that Christ subsisted in two natures from eternity? No. And so all of those texts say only that the incarnate son submits, with, which nobody argues with. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is another text that gets pressed into service because it speaks of a time in eternity future when the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him, namely the Father. But we have no problem with everlasting functional subordination because the incarnation is everlasting. Jesus remains fully and truly human. The Apostle Paul can write in A.D. 60... As the Son sits enthroned in heaven, Colossians 2.9, that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. The Son may be everlastingly subjected to the Father according to His human nature because He is everlastingly incarnate. But everlasting functional subordination is no argument for eternal functional subordination because though He will be incarnate for eternity future, The Son was not incarnate from eternity past. One more for this objection. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And you can see where they're going here. But the problem is they're reading that last phrase as if it said, and the Father is the head of the Son. As if headship and the corresponding submission were inherent to fatherhood and sonship. Paul says that God is the head of Christ. He uses the title of Messiah, the anointed one of God, which can only describe the son as he is the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and men, the one who is both God and man. To say that God is the head of Christ is simply to say that the incarnate son is subject to God the Father by virtue of his humanity which again, no one objects to. So when all of these texts are interpreted in their contexts and in light of the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son, as well as in light of the incarnation of the eternal Son, none of them constrain the student of Scripture to posit eternal relations of authority and submission in the Godhead. One final objection takes issue with the claim that submission between the divine persons requires multiple distinct wills. In other words, some proponents of ad intra submission believe that it's possible for the Son to submit to the Father in eternity past, while at the same time affirming that there is only one will in the Godhead. These theologians recognize that affirming three wills in the Trinity is to affirm three natures, and hence to affirm tritheism. And so they rightly want to avoid that. But they still think that submission is possible with one will. And the way they aim to explain it is to say that each person, oh, sorry, that each of the three persons can appropriate the single will of the divine nature such that, quote, the one will of God as appropriated by the Son can be subordinated to that same one will as appropriated by the Father. 
Now, if you don't understand that, fine. Check out. But if you follow that objection, how do we answer it? It's true that each of the three persons, quote-unquote, appropriate the self-same divine will. To, to put it another way, each person of the Trinity wills by virtue of the single divine will in persons' appropriate ways. But the act of willing itself only requires multiple persons who will, multiple willing ones, so to speak. It does not require multiple, multiple faculties of will. But submission requires both multiple persons who will and multiple faculties of willing. Why do I say that? Well, because the object, excuse me, because the subject and object of submission or subordination must be the will itself, and it cannot be the quote-unquote appropriation of the divine will. Now, this is going to get heady, but this is the level upon which the objection is made, and so I'm going to try to show the, the silliness of it. So the, the son's appropriation of the divine will is nothing other than the son willing by the divine nature, by virtue of the divine nature. And the father's appropriation of the divine will is nothing other than the father willing by virtue of that same divine nature. But it's incoherent to say that the son's willing can be subjected or subordinated to the father's willing while the faculty by which each person wills is identical. Since the son wills by the identical faculty of willing by which the father wills, we cannot speak of the subjection or subordination of wills without multiple faculties of willing. And we can't have multiple faculties of willing without multiple natures. Try it again. The Father acts by the single divine nature. The Son acts by the same single divine nature. We cannot introduce a sleight of hand called appropriation of the divine nature and say that the Father's actions are separable from the Son's actions. Distinct persons working? Yes. Separable? No. Otherwise, when Scripture teaches all three persons created the world, we would have to expect that there are three creations. But there are three who create, but there's only one creation. Three agents, so to speak, but only one agency. Three operators, but only one operation. In the same way, the Father wills by the single divine nature. The Son wills by the same single divine nature. We can't introduce a sleight of hand called appropriation of the divine will and say that the Father's willing is separable from the Son's willing such that the Son's willing can be subjected to the Father's willing. It just doesn't work. And that's illustrated by the fact that the very same author who employs this concept of appropriations of the divine will in order to avoid saying that there are multiple distinct wills in the Trinity, later in this unpublished article says that his reasoning requires, quote, a distinct mind and will for each person of the Godhead. So at the beginning, he said, we can't have multiple wills, otherwise we're going to have tritheism. At the end, he backs into it, and his reasoning can't escape because he's a logical man, because he's, he's vigorous in his reasoning, and he follows it into the very thing he said was heresy at the beginning of the article. It's an example of how when pressed according to logical consistency, the position which aims to maintain eternal relations of authority and submission ad intra inevitably leads to confessions about God that are indicative of tritheism rather than Trinitarianism. And so we find 
that ad intra-submission by distinct appropriations of a single will is nothing but a phantom explanation, a theological sleight of hand that, when pressed, is indistinguishable from positing three distinct wills in the Godhead. Subjection, or subordination, or submission, simply cannot be predicated of the self-same faculty of will. 